Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast, where host and astronaut Charlie Camarda and his intriguing variety of guests share their visions for transforming the way we work, learn, and solve some of the most daunting challenges on Earth and throughout the solar system. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, my name is Charlie Kamada. I was an astronaut on Space Shuttle Discovery, the return to flight uh, mission right after the Columbia accident. I will be a host today. It's called the Leading Edge Discovery podcast series where we, we will be talking with people from the United States and around the world, experts in science, technology, engineering, math, research. Um, our first series of episodes is going to be in the aerospace uh, field. Uh, we're going to focus primarily these first couple of uh, episodes on the Columbia accident and the uh, and the people that helped solve those problems. And lo and behold, we have a special guest today, uh, and I'm excited to introduce her. I'm honored to have my commander and good friend Eileen Collins. Eileen is a pioneer in aviation. She was the first female commander of a space shuttle, the first female pilot of a space shuttle. She has an amazing history and story to tell our audience today, and I'm going to have her do that. And and so I'd like to welcome Eileen Collins to the podcast. Eileen, welcome. We are so glad to have you here. Uh, you just um, you just finished a, a book not too long ago in uh, 2021, I believe, uh, and the title of it is "Through the Glass Ceiling and to the Stars," and there it is, and and it's amazing. And and the first thing I'm going to uh, ask you, Eileen, is tell us a little bit about the book because the book dives into your story, and so we want to hear about your story, but also what took you so long, Eileen? I was waiting for you to do this book. Well, first of all, thanks, Charlie, for having me on the podcast. It's a great opportunity. There's so much to talk about. I don't even know where to begin, but I think, you know, I did I did write a one page in the book about why I wrote the book, because I put this off for many, many years. I do not like to talk about myself. I don't want to be like, I, I mean, there's many, many reasons I know that there's a great story there, but I think what eventually got me to do this was the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic hit and all of my travel and uh, went away. Uh, the events that I do went to Zoom and all these other platforms, and I had extra time on my hands. So my co-author, Jonathan Ward, who had been asking me for a couple of months prior, would you like to write a book? Uh contacted him and said, I think if we're going to do it, this is the right time. I, since my parents have passed away now, in, so I did want to talk about how my parents influenced me, but they also had a lot of issues themselves. My father was a alcoholic. He drank a lot. Um, my mother, uh, she had issues. She was a big smoker. They both had what I see now is some form of anxiety. And I didn't want to like put all their problems out there while they were alive. And on the other hand, they were such an integral part of the kind of person that I became. I'm not like them at all. I don't see myself as a high anxiety person. Um, somehow, I think that that 
is a trait that a person is born with, uh, the tendency to have anxiety. I don't have that, um, but I thought that it was important for me to talk about in the book. So I, uh, my parents have passed away, so I, I've kind of told their story very respectfully. Um, the family that I came from uh, growing up in my small town in upstate New York and why I made the decision to join the military. For some reason, I loved flying. I loved the military. Now, that was upstate science. New York. Was that was that Corning, yes. New York? Was that Corning? Okay, so I'm actually from Elmira, New York. Elmira. Corning is about 20 minutes away. I, I went to Corning Community College and I do have connections there, but I'm uh, Elmira. Elmira. Okay. New York. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, so it, and, and then, you know, one other thing, uh, I don't want to make this too long of an answer, but one of the other important reasons that I wrote the book was to document the history of the space shuttle program. Now, there are people that are doing that. Much of it is from an engineering perspective. I wanted to write it from a, a narrative and a story perspective so people would be able to enjoy learning about the space shuttle program. And then the other reason that I was uh, starting to touch on before was to encourage young people to look at the military, to look at science, to look at mathematics, technology type degrees, the things that you can do with your life, if you have a STEM type degree are, I think, misunderstood. I think many young people, in, including, uh, I would say probably women uh, more so, think that it is just a very structured type uh, career where you know the military only can do things one way, uh, engineering only can do things one way. No, take engineering, for example. It is very uh, creative field. We need people that have ideas, that have creative ideas, that want to come out and build things, make new things, make life better. And that's what I see in math, science, engineering. And even so in the military, the military is very structured, but um, I became a pilot. Eventually, I became a test pilot. The difference between a operational pilot and a test pilot is the creativity and the open-mindedness that you need as a test pilot to find ways to do things better, do things differently. Wow, and that's that's, inter that, that's interesting, Eileen, because you know I'm not a pilot. And, and before we go, let me put a plug in for the Epic Education Foundation. That's something that's near and dear to my heart, and we definitely need more young ladies in engineering. And I'm glad you said it was creative. But me not being a pilot, Eileen, you distinguishing between flying big planes like you did the C one. C-141. C-141 and a test pilot. So talk a little bit about that. Totally different cultures, right? Right. So operational pilots. Now, I was an Air Force instructor pilot for three years. You teach the students, this is the way it must be done. You must follow the procedure. That is a safety, uh, I want to say, culture. Do, don't drift off the procedure. Uh, but we also teach them if an emergency happens, how to handle that. So it's very regimented. But then when you get out, in my case, when I started flying C-141s, yes, you have to follow the procedure, but many times you're out somewhere by yourself with a crew. You can't contact the command post. You have to be able to think for yourself, not only keep your crew safe, obviously, but get the mission done. And I think that being a C-141 aircraft commander was great preparation for me to be eventually a space shuttle commander. Um, now, you asked about the test piloting portion. Well, to be a military test pilot, you must have an op three years of operational flying in a certain type of aircraft. So for me, it was the C-141. Um, I applied three times to the Air Force Test Pilot School before I got in. Um, I would not give up. 
I kept trying. I eventually got into my last attempt. They made me the class leader because I was the senior ranking officer. I didn't want to be the class leader. I had plenty to do, but that's not something that you can uh, run and, and for or be voted in. But let, I, let's I, pause. Let's pause there because I always wanted to ask you this, Eileen, because this was at a time that there weren't too many ladies, lady aviators. We weren't going to be flying them in into war, but to be now the leader in that in that group. And I think back then times were a little bit different. And here's this really attractive, hot, blonde test pilot, aviator, female, and you were filled with these, you know. Top Gun testosterone environment, testosterone filled environment. What was that like? Well, I have a chapter on that in the book. And <laughs> so so I didn't want to be the class leader. So at the Air Force Test Pilot School, it's, you know, the way I said it was mostly fighter pilots and bomber pilots, which was a mission that I was not allowed to fly at the time. It was 1989. I was not allowed to fly those aircraft because by law, Women were not allowed to fly into combat, so I could not fly combat aircraft. But I had flown the C-141, which was a cargo aircraft. So not only was I a woman, but I was a heavy pilot, which was kind of out of the normal uh, culture of what you think the people are at test pilot school. So I was I was kind of flying off. heavy planes. It was a little bit of a challenge. Not only did the class have a woman, but they had a, a heavy driver and the way so i had again i didn't ask for this i was told you since you are the senior ranking officer you will be the class leader there were 23 of us and the way i i said okay the way i decided to handle this was to uh not be a domineering autocratic type leader the smartest thing i did was the very first class meeting i i had a list of things that needed to be done and i asked for volunteers no one is going to volunteer when you're a month into the program and you're, you know, up to your head in papers and flights and speeches and testing. So I asked on the first day, I need volunteers for these jobs and people volunteered. So I farmed out all the hard work. And then my job was to be there in case someone had a problem. Hey, if you got a problem, come to me, let me know, because I was the contact with the school commandant and the school operations officer. And I held class meetings once a week. And hey, you got y'all have any gripes? Just let me know what they are and I'll take them off the chain. And I think it was really important for me not to tell people what to do because, you know, they don't want that. These are all, you know, mature, uh, highly, I want to say, uh, respected and uh, excellent pilots that have already been chosen. Now they're going into the new career as test pilots. They don't want somebody telling them what to do. So I I tried to make it a, a group effort um, to you know, what does a class have to do? I mean, there's just a whole list of, I mean, we had to, the first job was to paint the school. So, I mean, there, which, and, and there were several other things that we had to do together as a class. So again, I think one of the smartest things for a leader is we did a Charlie on our mission on STS-114 is right at the beginning, assign the tasks that need to be done on that mission to the various members of the crew or the class and give everybody their responsibilities. And as the leader, you're just there. If there's problems, come to me and let me know, and I'll help you solve it, your problem. Uh, let me tell you something, Eileen. I I could vouch for you to the nth degree. Uh, I've, I've I've worked for different kind of managers, different kind of leaders, but a leader is is something special. And 
and you were a leader. Believe me when I say this, Eileen, um, you were the right person for that job after the Columbia accident. And we're going to and we're going to talk about the Columbia accident. But let me tell you, this was a very intense atmosphere. There was a lot of animosity. There was a major loss of trust. And you were selected for this mission before you knew it was going to be the flight right after the Columbia accident. But I want to tell you, Eileen, um, you handled it better than any any pilot in that office, any leader in that office would have handled it because you had to operate uh, almost on a tightrope to to keep everyone everyone working together, being positive among all this negativity around us. And I just, I was, believe me, I've only flown one time in my life in space. I feel like I've been blessed my entire life and having you my as my commander was definitely uh, the best thing that could ever happen to Well, to Charlie, I will say you got, you got probably the most challenging mission that has ever flown in the space shuttle program. Because <laughs> that was, if you take a look at all the things that we had to change and the new things that we were doing, you know, maybe after STS-1, I mean, I got to give John Young and Bob Crippen, oh. they had the most challenging mission. They flew the first one. But ours had so many changes in it. It was. Oh, and my God, you know, we had an you had an amazing crew. I mean, not me, but the other people on that crew were just amazing. And with all the training we did and the way we went through the training, I think I think it was perfect. I think everything went off perfect. Um, And we're going to talk about it in the second in the second half of this uh, this episode. But I just wanted to jump in there because. As a leader, you were phenomenal, Eileen. And I'm sure there are lots of amazing, good words of wisdom in your book for young ladies and young men as they enter these roles. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I do. I actually have a speech on the uh, loss of Columbia and the lessons learned. But, you know, jumping back to your question about when I flew the C-141 when I was in test pilot school, I made mistakes in leadership in in those when I was younger because you know of course you're learning and you know it's okay to make a mistake I mean in the book I talk about a four-step process of dealing with mistakes which I eventually developed in my own mind while I was an astronaut because we all make mistakes and when we did simulators together on by the way back to I, I mentioned I had made mistakes in my previous leadership positions I learned from that and one of the biggest ones was telling people what to do that does not work. When you're like telling people, do it this way, do it this way, that does not work. If you if you have mature people on your crew, pilots, engineers, you know, our astronauts, you tell them what the mission is. You tell them what the end goal is. And here's how we've done it in the past. If we have done something in the past, go do the job. Come to me if you have a problem. And I found that that worked with our, our robotics, with uh, Wendy and you doing the logistics transfer, uh, with the inspection, uh, the rendezvous pitch around maneuver, everything that we did on that mission that was new. And uh, just a very mature uh, team, I think that you've, as a leader, you've got to trust. Let, let me tell you something, Eileen, you didn't have the most cohesive team when we first started. Um, you don't think that I don't want the audience to think that they they pick these shuttle crews and they all get together and they all get along good. No, it was pre- it was pretty difficult because, like we said, the environment, things were very tense. Emotions were high. 
And you handled it superbly. I mean, you had an amazing pilot. Uh, I mean, Vegas was just phenomenal. I mean, he could do anything. And you let us have that um, that ownership of what we had to do, that responsibility. And and you you uh, gave us uh, you, you let us do our job. And and luckily, I had a lot of good, really good mentors because I was the, you know, I don't know if you know this, Eileen, but I was the oldest rookie astronaut that ever flew in space. I was 53 years old when we, when we took off. But anyway, that seems so you. young that, now, doesn't it? <laughs> no, yeah, right. You're young. absolutely right. You're absolutely right there. But I don't want to, I interrupted you. You were going off on these great points of, of leadership and learning from mistakes. Yeah, yeah. So I developed a four-step process of dealing with mistakes. And what when we did our simulators together, if you remember, uh, Juan Garrigo was our training manager. I had like a line to him from the simulator. And if my crew was doing everything perfectly, which y'all did most of the time, everything going well, I'd go talk to Juan and say, you need to make it harder. I want to push my crew. I want them to get to the point where they make mistakes because I want to see how they deal with mistakes um, on the fly as well as in the debrief. So my four-step process was, number one, admit you made a mistake. Number two, fix it. Number three, eventually you need to do something to prevent someone else from making that same mistake. And number four, you've got to move on. Uh, you can't dwell on your mistake because you're going to just make another one. Um, you've you've got to be able to move on from your mistake. So those four things I taught to my kids, I still use in my everyday life because, again, we all make mistakes. And a lot of times we don't want to admit that. And that's something that you... I think it's important for a parent to teach their children. Um, I'm going to switch gears for a minute. I mentioned that I changed my leadership style a little bit after the accident. I think that I I still was a little too autocratic in my leadership uh, style back in the Air Force test pilot school, as well as when I was a commander on my first mission. I felt like, oh, I'm the leader, so I need to make sure that I've got my hands in everything. After the accident, I and this is going to take longer for me to to mention, so I'm just going to go to the bottom line. I learned to be a better listener, to really listen to what people were trying to tell me, not just assume what they're trying to tell me and go with that, but to really listen and, and ask, 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 if I think I might be misunderstanding. The second one is humility. So sometimes, you know, you can have a little bit uh, too much of a chip on your shoulder is the boss and, you know, I'm responsible, da, da, da. But I think having that sense of humility in general, in the way you are when you speak, people are more willing to speak up to you. They won't be intimidated by you. And because I think people are intimidated by astronauts, you don't even have to open your mouth. You just walk into a room, they're like, oh, it's an astronaut, and they're afraid to say something. So make sure that uh, you have a sense of humility. And then the third one is creativity. Always Make sure that people are thinking creatively. And one of the best examples of that is the rendezvous pitch around maneuver. So we were trying to figure out ways to inspect the outside of the shuttle to see if there's damage, because obviously the hole in the wing is what caused the Columbia accident. We wanted to know, is there damage under our wing, under the belly of the shuttle? Well, an engineer in the rendezvous uh, section of the shuttle program came up with this great idea of doing the rendezvous pitch around maneuver. Now, I was in the meeting when that was presented. The first thought that went through my mind was, why didn't I think of that? Shame on me. But that's humanity. That's the way we are. Like, I thought, well, what a great idea. Why didn't I think of it? Not my idea. So people well, in the I, 
Eileen, maybe Push it was that safety. That. Maybe it was that safety pilot of you thinking, "Wow, I'm going to be pretty close to the space station. Why do I want to take my eyes off the space station and do a backflip?" Well, so that was exactly what someone else in the meeting uh, brought up. And maybe some of your listeners were in this meeting. It was actually one of the most historic meetings I was at at NASA. There weren't that many people there. It was on the, it was what we called level three. It was an orbiter meeting, maybe even below that. And people in the meeting were saying, you can't do that. You can't flip the shuttle around because the crew will lose sight. And we have a flight rule that says the crew can't lose sight inside of whatever it was, you know, six miles or there was some flight rule there that said you can't lose sight inside of a certain distance. And then I started thinking, well, we wrote the flight rule. We can change the flight rule. And so this kind of conversation was going back and forth. And it really was a great meeting. And, and finally, I said, you know what? Why don't we test it in the simulator? And we'll just see. And then we can come back and present the results. Well, that rendezvous picture on maneuver, that great creative idea that an engineer had the courage, I'm going to say, to bring up in a meeting something that was way out of line with anything we've ever done. I mean, it takes some guts to come up with an idea like that and then go pitch it to the program. So let's try it in the simulator. So we did. And as, as you remember, Charlie, we developed this procedure as a crew that turned out to be inexpensive. It was easy to do. It was so the viewers elegant, that are the viewers difficult. that are watching, Eileen does this backflip right under the space station. And the people on top of the space station are filming us taking um uh telephoto images of the belly of the vehicle. And you want to know something. Eileen, that maneuver saved our life. Oh, yeah. Remember? It, yeah Remember? Because they found the two gap fillers. Yep, those photos were taken by John Phillips that, and Sarah on the station. That and, maneuver saved our life because we yep. found the gap fillers. And then remember what happened next. There was this big debate. Should we do an emergency EVA? Do we have to pull those gap fillers out? Yep, I remember that very well. And... And one of the people that will be on the broadcast is a is a researcher at NASA Langley, Tom Horvath, who who basically did an analysis on the ground and said, you know what, we have to pull those gap fillers because it's going to trip the boundary layer. It's going to shed these vortices. It's going to hit our wings. And then you had to make a decision. What should we do? Should we have this emergency EVA? Right. And well, they also thought that if one of those gap fillers, if the airflow pulled it, it could pull out a tile and then that would or more than one tile and that would expose an entire area to the heat of reentry and could have developed a hole under the belly of the shuttle. So that was actually kudos to the with robotics people that developed that procedure on the fly while we were in orbit. And then Wendy and Vegas practiced that on their little simulator over on the space station. They actually practiced right. a robot arm with a crew member on the end of the robot arm, fly yeah. him under the shuttle so he could pull those gap fillers. And that was Steve. That's that right. We were we were a rehearse, and they did it in like about a day and a half. They yeah. had to choreograph this unbelievable emergency EVA, putting the crew underneath the belly of the vehicle. We didn't know if Soichi would be able to communicate. With Steve, or if we could communicate with Steve, so we had to put Soichi out at a point where we could relay comp to, to Steve underneath the belly of the vehicle. Right. I, I mean, it was uh, it was incredible that they, I mean, it kind of reminded me of Apollo 13 when they were spinning 
all night long trying to figure out how to get the Apollo 13 crew back uh, safely from the moon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these guys were staying up all night, but long trying but to there was some. There were some people on the ground that didn't think we needed to do that. And then I remember you showed me a report that they had written and they sent up to us. When you first asked me, I said, I don't know if we need to do this. You showed me that report. And you want to know something, Eileen? I had the names of all those people, the Friends of Charlie list in my crew notebook. And so in my crew notebook, I had Tom Horvath's phone number. Oh, you can't see it. Well, yeah, you could see it yeah. there. I had Tom Horvath's phone number. I called him up from the space station on his cell phone to chat with him. <laughs> you know, that. by the way, that you, it's a little bit off the subject, but the fact that we as a shuttle crew, for the first time, I, I believe, had such widespread access to people on the ground. It, in the past, it was so controlled. I mean, everything had to go through uh, mission control. And nowadays, it's you can just call people and talk to them. They can't call you, but you can call. They cannot call up to you because there's a firewall, but you can call down to them. And I, we I don't that extensively. I don't think they would have let me do that. I didn't ask permission. I just carried their phone numbers and took them up there. We had a um, every night before we went to bed, we got to talk to Rommel with no one else listening on the control right. loop. And Rommel which, was our boss, right? He was the chief of the astronaut. He was the chief of the astronaut. Thank you for reminding the audience. Yeah. But this was the one of the first times this was ever done because we right. want to talk directly to Rommel. And, um, and, and so you talk about leadership, Eileen, I was, I was a pain in the neck. I was, I was really <laughs> off the charts after the accident and I was making a lot of enemies in the program office. And you had to, you had to deal with me, even though I was getting into trouble with all these flight directors and I want to tell you, if it was any other commander, I would have been thrown off of the flight. But somehow you managed to save my oh, Charlie. career. Okay, Charlie, first of all, this is what I was thinking. My crew can say whatever they want, whenever they want. And we just killed seven crew members on the Columbia. And if I'm going to tell somebody that they can't speak up, we still have a problem. God, Eileen, that is so beautiful. And I I remember telling you, Charlie, you keep speaking up. You know, just be diplomatic about it, but just keep speaking up. You must do this. It's our responsibility. And if you remember, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board blamed the culture at NASA, not just the space shuttle program, but all of NASA. Blame the culture just as much to blame as the hole in the wing was the culture at NASA of people being intimidated, not willing to speak up. So I was like, every one of my seven crew members, I want you all to speak up. You are responsible to do that. Let me explain something for the audience. Eileen has mentioned that she's humble or she needed to be humble. She is one of the most humble human beings I have ever met. And 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 that's why authors and publishers will probably pull their hair out for her to brag about herself. But let, let me explain something. Um to the audience is that Eileen, you managed to understand the concept that caused the accident. And most people at NASA and upper management never got it. And this is what Amy Edmondson's called psychological safety. The people that spoke up, the Rodney Roaches, they were vilified. Their careers suffered. My career suffered. But um, and and you remember, I think Wayne Hale spoke up and then someone else 
squashed that idea for taking a picture. They never spoke up again because they were afraid. And what you just described, Eileen, was what every manager, that's how the NASA culture should have changed. Unfortunately, I don't think it has, but and, and that's you know, the sign it, of a real leader. So this this is one thing that I, one of our uh, flight directors, John Shannon, I want to give him credit for something. After the accident, he, I can't remember where they moved him to, but he was in a, a, a leadership position and he, this is how he ran his meetings. He told me this and I'll never forget it. When the meeting was over, he'd look around the room and say, if you haven't spoken up yet, I want you to tell me what you think. He goes, because if you're going to come to my meeting, you are responsible for telling me, you know, why are you here? And, and what do you think about what we're doing? So he wouldn't let somebody out of the room unless they gave their opinion. I actually started using that in some of the uh, meetings that post NASA, because I, and that would surprise people. They'd be sitting along the wall over there. Like, why are you asking me what I think? Well, what are you doing in my meeting? If you're not here, you just sitting there, just staring at the wall. If you're going to be in my meeting, I want to know what you think. I want to make sure that you're listening, you're participating. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board blamed the silent safety culture at NASA because the people that were working in the safety organization sat along the wall. They felt like they weren't listened to. They felt like, well, we're here to perform a function, but nobody really cares what we think. And and that's not the way safety should be. Safety does need to perform their their, you know, I want to say function, but they also need to talk about what their opinion is and is engineers what what they think. Eileen, um, you know, I was, you know, they made me director of engineering. I did not want to be director of engineering. Mike Griffin came up to me <laughs> while we were on the pad I, before we launched and we were out there with Mike Griffin. He took me aside and he says, I want you to be the director. I says, Mike, I don't want to be the director of engineering. I want to go back to Langley and be a researcher. And what were you thinking when you heard when I was director of engineering, Mike Coates is at the flight readiness review for STS-121. He says, JSC is ready to fly. And I step up to the microphone and I say, you know, I'm Charlie Kamara. I'm the director of engineering. I don't think we're safe to fly. And then I was reassigned like three days later. I mean, you know, I, I begged him not, he could have fired me two weeks later after the launch, but he flied me publicly while the crew, the, their their families are all waiting to launch. Well, you know, I'm guessing, so Mike Griffin, I remember asking you to take that engineering job. I know that, and I, I'm not to put words in his mouth, but I suspect that he his goal was to change the culture at NASA. Yes, and had, yes. You were willing to speak up, put people yes. that were Mike, willing to, you know, speak up. Exactly. Mike Griffin knew me and that's what he wanted me to do. And I said, Mike, you know, I don't mind going in the ring with one hand tied behind my back, but don't tie both hands behind my back. And he didn't really back me up. He went along with Mike Coates. They concocted some other reason for reassigning me. And uh, lo and behold, that next flight, had an issue with the ice frost ramps that came off and Mike Griffin wouldn't call me up, but Chris Galise called me up and wanted me to be in the control room to watch the video for that launch. Sure enough, the ice frost ramps came off. Luckily they didn't hit the wing leading edge, but, um, but we had, remember 
after Challenger, they fixed this the solid rocket booster joint. NASA was never able to fix the foam coming off the external tank. They took the bipod foam ramps right. off for our launch, but we still had this huge power ramp. And yep. remember, we said, uh, I think we should take the power ramp off. That was the crew. And yeah, so there's a little history behind that. So before our flight, and this was, I, I don't remember the exact time, our crew went to Michoud, which is where in Louisiana, which is where the tanks are made and where they spray the foam on. And we were climbing around the tank. It was laying on its side and we're looking at it. And I remember asking one of the engineers, what is this area? That's the protuberance air load, which is, it's a ramp that runs down the side of the external tank. And I asked him like, what, why is it there? You know, why does it have foam on it? Da, da, da. He told me that you must have that pal ramp to protect this high pressure uh, return line. I think it was, it was either hydrogen or oxygen, this high pressure return line, because when the shuttle's launching, you've got this airflow around the tank. And if you don't have the PAL ramp there to break up that airflow, that high pressure uh, could break the high, could break the line. And then you have a boom. I said, that's good enough for me. Keep the PAL ramp on. And they gave me another, I won't go into it now, but another explanation is why you need the foam. They convinced me after you know, going to the meetings and asking questions that the pal ramp needed to stay. Well, guess what? On our launch, we lost a three foot long, almost a foot wide piece of foam fell off the pal ramp right about the time that the booster separated. This thing fell off. It Just about the same the time that the pot, that the bipod came up. So it would yes. have had probably much yes. more energy if it would have hit us. Well, it went under the wing and that night before we were in orbit, that night before we went to bed, they sent us a video of it. Mission Control sent a video, and I was astounded. I thought, am I in a dream? We had a giant piece of foam fall off. It went, you could see it go right under the wing. It was pure luck. Yeah. And, and you want to know something? My wife at that time was well aware of all the technical stuff because I was always bringing people home talking about it. She knew more than the people that were answering questions for NASA on TV. Uh, oh, who was it? Bill Parsons, the Senate director of KSC, grounded the fleet of shuttles. That's right. So if we got into trouble, that that safe that safety flight that would have come up to save us was grounded, and they didn't tell us the crew. But our our, our spouses are watching this on TV while wow, they're grounding the rescue mission. Yeah, yeah. So the, the shuttle actually was grounded for an entire year until they actually did more analysis and determined, the shuttle program determined the PAL ramp was actually not needed. And That's the, right. Although we had flown, I mean, it saved a lot of weight too, or a lot of mass. But And, we and so flown. for the next the next flight after us, there was no PAL ramp. They took they it off just like they, they did the bipod. And it turned out, so this is a great lesson to be learned here. So management as well as engineering convinced me that that Pell ramp had to stay, but I got to trust my experts, right? So, you know, I'm the shuttle commander. I'm, I can't possibly know everything of everyone's job. So I trusted that what they told me was correct. But then when the problem happened, they went and did more analysis and determined we didn't need and, that. And I remember so, the person that did the probability risk assessment. Do you remember what the odds were that person told us of that Pell ramp coming off? Oh, I don't remember. One, no. One in 10,000, Eileen. One in 10,000 okay. chance that it would ever come off. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you've got, 
So, so this is one of the things I, I like to talk about. When you make decisions based on analysis only, there is this huge uncertainty factor. You must do the actual testing. So after the Columbia accident, if you remember, NASA hired Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, and they set up a, it was a test apparatus where they were firing pieces of foam at a shuttle wing. Well, I'm backing up to the Columbia accident. Experts were saying, there's no way a piece of foam can put a hole in that wing. It just cannot happen. That RCC, which is the front of the wing, the reinforced carbon carbon is just too hard. You cannot put a hole in it. Well, Southwest Research Institute fired this foam, put a hole in the wing. They called it the smoking gun. So they took, so we're convinced, yes, falling foam can put a hole in the wing if it's going fast enough, you know, just basic physics. Yep. Well, one other, one other point on that, um, if you are going to use analysis to make a decision, you've got to realize there's this massive uncertainty. To bring that uncertainty down, you must do testing, real world testing with real stuff. And, Feed and, that into the model, make the model. So that model we were using was called Crater. And Crater was a good model. I mean, I'm not, in fact, they continue to use it till the end of the program, but it gave us bad info back during Columbia. But when you did the testing, feed in the real world data, now you have more certainty in what you're dealing with. So anyway, I just wanted to say it, that test, test, no, test. You've got to that, test. You can't just that, do everything based on analysis. That's beautiful. And one of the other researchers we're going to have on the program, because we actually put together this team. And I instigated this because I knew these people at Langley and Glenn that really were the experts. And, and they were going to do this test without any analysis, Eileen. I don't know if you know this, but this team that I put together that JSC didn't want me to put together was led by a gentleman named Ed Fasanella from Langley, Matt Mellis from Glenn. They had a real physics-based model. Crater was just a curve fit, an empirical model to a bunch of like 50 small, tiny pieces of foam hitting tile, not even wing, uh, uh, yep. not even the RCC wing leading edge. But, um, but it's an amazing testament to why the people at JSC did not have the right team, did not have the right expertise, but they were arrogant. They said, oh, it's never going to cause a problem, even though they never shot a piece of foam at a wing leading edge. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they were extrapolating like they had. Yeah, they, they extrapolated from. They yeah, they extrapolated from three inch cubed pieces of foam to a piece of foam that was 1400 cubic inches. So yeah, over 400 we times. <laughs> we learned we cannot do that. So you can't extrapolate. As as and you know, the other thing, Charlie, models are used everywhere in the world today. They're used all over the place. I mean, they're you used- You got to validate them. You got to validate them. And you've got to validate your models. But the other thing is you have to know what, before you use a model to make a decision, you have to know what is the factor of certainty of this model. Now, some models are used all the time, every day. They're highly, um, I want to say, uh, mature might, might be a good word to use. And you have a small- uh, I mean, you're very, I want to say, highly certain that you can use yeah. that model for yeah, a yeah. decision. And, but you've got in, but the crater was not, was should not have been used to make a decision. It, it yeah. until and we had done the you're, more testing. You're absolutely right. So those people that were using probabilistic risk assessment, I looked at them as people that were doing the program offices 
job of convincing them that they were safe to fly. And they would come up with these numbers, but their probabilistic risk assessment, when you talked about garbage in, garbage out with crater, I mean, the only level of certainty we had was when they took the bipod foam off, we knew we weren't going to get hit by a piece of bipod foam. And so after our flight, they took off the PAL ramp. And so now when I'm director of engineering for STS-121, other pieces of foam that had been coming off with these ice frost ramps, I said, let's take them off because we can't predict if it's going to be a problem. And they didn't do it, but... Um, yeah. You know, one, one of the things I think that's really good that came out of all of this, if you remember uh, back when we were training, there was a question asked of the astronauts, do you want to go back in the next spacecraft? Do you want to go back to a capsule or do you want to continue on with a winged spacecraft? Yeah. And it turned out that the shuttle had two core problems with the design. One of them is that the heat shield was exposed to falling debris. So we've got rid of that now because the heat shield now sits on the top, whether it was SpaceX exactly. or the Ryan Space Launch System uh, yep. or all the other. So that one solved. And the second one is there was no ejection system for the crew in the space That's shuttle. That's right. That's and right. So we could not get out. If there was an explosion, we didn't have an ejection system. That has also been fixed because all the human launch vehicles now, spacecraft, have what, what they call they don't call them ejection systems. They're called something else, but crew launch escape. Abort, launch abort, launch abort, launch yeah. abort. Crew escape yeah. systems. And, yeah. and so the new spacecraft are so much safer than the shuttle. You know, the shuttle was very versatile. It, you know, it, it was it was a rocket. It was a satellite. It was a, a glider, an aircraft. But it, the design was inherently yeah. risky. And yeah. I don't think we will ever, ever again fly a design like the shuttle where it hangs down low with no ejection system yeah. and no way to protect your heat shield. I mean, that's in, in the today it's just so much safer. So for those of it you was, who are listening, want to be astronauts yeah. today, you will have a much safer spacecraft than we had in the days of the shuttle. Yes. Yes. And you know, it was risky from day one, my God, Bob, uh, Bob Crippen and John Young. Oh yep. my God. They have to be the Brit had, be the bravest, the bravest people in the world to fly on a vehicle first... that was never flight tested as totally different than anything that we had ever flown before. That's right. It's the only space human spacecraft that the first time it was flown was flown with people on board. It was no what they called it unmanned test. There was no unmanned test uh, on the shuttle like they did during Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. Yeah. And from that very first flight, which they almost didn't make it back. There were large pieces of foam that came off. We realized how deviant that that was, right? We were seeing deviant behavior from the standpoint, the shuttle was never, uh, the tiles were never supposed to come off. They were never supposed to be hit by debris. <laughs> well, you know, if you remember, uh, Diane Vaughn wrote, she was a soci sociologist oh, yeah. that wrote a book after Challenger called The Challenger Wait a minute. Decision. Wait a minute. Yeah, I'm well, going to get it. I'm going to get uh, that book for my viewers, Eileen. It, yeah, I don't know I have if you can also. see this, but look at all the tabs in there, the different colors and notes. Every er, everyone should have read this book. It, hold it, hold it a little bit closer to your left. So it, it's it's an, oh, it's not coming up. There it is. Now we can see it. Yeah, the Challenger yeah. launch decision. She coined a term called. Uh, uh, the normalization. normalization of deviance. Yeah. And it was the, the system is designed to work a certain way. 
then you start flying it. Well, it's not doing what it was designed to do, or it's operating outside of what we had expected. And well, well, that must be okay. The normalization of deviance, burning through of O-rings, big pieces yeah. of foam falling off the shuttle. Uh, I, I have that shift. book on my shelf too. You know, I even interviewed Diane Vaughn after we came back from space. I gave her a collage from our crew. And um, and I've spoken to Alan McDonald about three, three weeks before his passing, right? About his book, Truth Lies and O-Rings. But but you know, we know it's we know it's risky business. The power ramp came off, the gap filler. Uh, to to be a little bit on a little bit lighter note, Eileen, we were getting ready to lift off. And of course, I'm on the mid-deck with uh, Wendy Lawrence and Andy Thomas. And you and you and um and and Kelly, Jim Kelly, uh, Jim Kelly says, Hey Eileen, look at these buzzards circling over the top of yeah. the vehicle. Remember yeah. that? Yes, and I do. I, rem I remember your words on the com loop. Oh, don't worry, Jim. The minute they light those engines off, those buzzards just clear out. Oh yeah, they're they're going to be out of there. They're going to be out of there. And and then we see the pictures when we come back of this buzzard flying right over our vehicle, almost gets skewered right on the tippy top of the external tank that where the, the coolie hat was and just and do, luckily doesn't strike our vehicle. Well, you know, that buzzard, he, he was also, he was operating outside of his normal, I want to say, <laughs> airspace. He was in the prohibited airspace and he got what he deserved. He he must have had, you know, what 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 do you call it? he must have had rabies or something. No, he wasn't. He must have been must have been it must have been a a, a dysfunctional a dysfunctional <laughs> buzzard that was flying. Well, you over. remember for years we had problems with birds. I remember the woodpecker pecking on the external tanks foam. And yeah. I mean that was a that was a pretty serious problem. And they tried to get rid of those woodpeckers and whatever else bird was out there. And they tried putting like these owls out there, like these fake owls, thinking, well, that didn't work. And the what what they finally figured out was noise. They they had this noise, um it was in some frequency range. I don't remember if it was high or low frequency, but that got rid of the woodpeckers on the launch pad having having noise i, I mean I it's mean, somebody again creative thinking who i wouldn't no, have thought of that number one lesson number one to all people that are thinking about designing and and finding a location for a launch complex don't put it where there are hurricanes uh don't put it in a game preserve where there are buzzards and wood <laughs> salt water the salt water alligators alligators on the shuttle the shuttle landing strip Yes, you know, uh, but all that salt water caused corrosion over the years. And, and if you have a reusable launch vehicle, you're going to have to deal with corrosion, which we did in the in the shuttle program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember the and, remember the the rudder speed brake actuators um, in those. Uh, they were the hydraulic actuators. They had corrosion in them, and they were very and, hard to change out. And we found out after Columbia that those gears were put in backwards. Right. You so the rotor speed brake actuator on, <laughs> on the on the Discovery, which is the one oh, we were maybe it was Atlantis initially. Yeah, it <laughs> they they took it out to inspect it to see if there was corrosion in it. And then they uh, realized that the actuator itself, like if you had stomped on the rudder with your right foot, it would have given you a left deflection. 
And several of them were were built improperly. And so the whole fleet had to be checked. And I mean, who thought they had flown all those years with that thing installed and built improperly. But fortunately, no shuttle commander stomped on the rudder. I mean, seriously, if they had stomped on the rudder, you would have gotten an unexpected outcome. And so, you know, I like to say after, I mean, I was working before I was selected to fly. I was working with a lot of these people all around at NASA trying to come up with this technology for the IR uh, handheld camera that we we would use to inspect. for the. And I always like to say we learned more that we didn't know about space shuttle. After the Columbia accident, probably yes. then the sum total that we learned for the 30 years plus before we flew. And if you remember that, so we had sort of, we meaning the whole program had declared the shuttle operational. And after the accident, the accident board said, no, you are not operational. You are still a flight test spacecraft. You are still in flight test. And not only were we learning more about the shuttle, but we were learning how it interacted with the environment. So the environment on the ground, I mentioned corrosion from the salt water, you know, the winds blowing up from the yep. uh, ocean, the east, those east winds coming off the ocean, how it interacted, you know, we, uh, you have the integration team, when the shuttle launches, you've got all that interaction, um, airflow between the tank, the boosters, the orbiter, how it ages in space, you know, it just how it interacts with the environment. Yeah. And even on the ground. So we were learning so much. There is still so much to be learned from the space shuttle program that applies to future launch vehicles. I don't I don't know if you know this, Eileen, but when I was director of engineering, after I got reassigned and I was in the NASA Engineering and Safety Center, I found an anomaly on our wing leading edge, on, on the RCC wing leading edge that the people didn't think was a problem. We flew for another eight times. Um, before they realized that we had 12 panels that had this subsurface anomaly. And when we landed and they saw this anomaly, they took off that wing panel. I think it was panel 8R. And they put it on the bench at um, at the Cape. And one of the guys went with a little dental pick. And large pieces of, of um, coating on the RCC just came off readily, just flaked off. <laughs> and so for the people that said, oh, we could keep flying space shuttles, we shouldn't retire the vehicle. No, I, I believe, I strongly believe that vehicle needed to be retired. It, it needed yeah. to be retired. It definitely did. You know, the space shuttle was a wonderful, capable spacecraft. I mean, it, it was so versatile. And, it, and I still brag about, you know, the 30 years we flew the shuttle. What was it? 135 missions. Yeah. We did so much. And it was, it was, but, but it was not the right design from a safety point of view. And yeah. if you're going to keep flying, I mean, if you have an accident, your whole space program is going to shut down for, yeah. you know, in, in, imagine, in the case of the shuttle two years plus. Imagine, imagine if that pal ramp hit our vehicle and God forbid, we didn't make it back home. Could have been the end of the entire space program. Oh, it would have I mean, been. Yeah. It would have been. I knew. I mean, I knew one more accident yeah. or major incident, the program would be over. I mean, I went when after. If you remember, after, and I'm sure you do, after the Columbia accident, there were people that wanted to shut the program down right then. They go, "We killed two crews. It's time to shut this yeah. down." Yeah. I I was very vocal. We do not want to shut down the shuttle program because, first of all, that would say that this crew of seven died for no reason at all. They died for a program that wasn't worth flying. 
No, yeah. but I didn't want to make it just an emotional decision. We needed to finish building the space station. So that was the reason that in, I believe we had to get congressional approval too. You know, Congress could have shut us down if, I mean, they could have easily shut us down if they wanted to. Um, you know, but we had to build the space station. So the compromise was made. Finish the space station, then shut it down. You might remember we had something called Shuttle 2020. So before the Columbia accident, we were uh, we were upgrading the shuttle to fly through the year 2020. Well, it shut down in 2011 uh, because of the accident. We decided build the station when it's done, shuttle's done. Yeah. And I think that was the right that was the right answer. You know, this is a this is a good point to maybe we finish up this podcast because you know we're getting close. It's almost February first. We will be remembering the falling crews from three different vehicles from three different missions: Apollo One, uh, Challenger, STS eighty six, no STS fifty one L, and and um, STS one hundred seven Columbia. You know, and we had, you know, it was a very special mission for us to be on. And like I said, I'm very lucky, very blessed, but it was a kind of a solemn, a solemn time for us, right? It was a very solemn time for us, Eileen. And 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 you know, if you look at the patches that Eileen and I have, you know, the crew of SDS 107 was always on our mind, and that's why their patch. Is is in our patch. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that affected us as a crew and you as our commander and what that mission meant to us, right? Yes, yeah, sorry about that uh interruption there. Um we wanted to do something to honor. I mean, there's this, I, there's so much I could say about this. I'll, I'll try to be specific. We wanted to do something on our mission to honor the 107 crew. And we did a couple small things like we, we took the crew photo with us and we took some things in our, our personal kits and official kits. But Andy Thomas offered to me um, that he would be interested in writing a, um, a, a script for a ceremony that we could do for the 107 crew. And I thought that was a great idea. So Andy took that on and I wrote a little bit about it in my book, but you can also find it uh, in the NASA history. Uh, each one of the crew members read a little bit um, and yeah. we remembered them and honored them on our mission. And the key point to make is that of these people that died in space flight. So there were 17 between the Apollo 1 uh, Challenger and Columbia. But there's 25 names on the astronaut memori memorial mirror down at Kennedy Space Center. 25 people that died in either spaceflight or training for space flights. And the mission that they were doing is exploring space, getting people off planet Earth, getting us to a position where we can learn, you know, off planet Earth to look back at us and learn more about the human race and planet Earth from a different perspective. And that's at a very, very top level. And why do we explore space? Well, we explore space because we're curious people and we also want to make life better here on Earth. And that's why these astronauts uh, went out and took on these dangerous missions gave their lives, and we need to remember them always. And that's why I really love the astronaut memorial that we have down at Kennedy Space Center, because all of those people are 
remembered for the courage and the fact that they gave their life for a mission. Something was more important than them as an individual, but for an overall mission for the human race. So all of that that I just said is off the top of my head. But I think that, you know, for you and I, Charlie, and our fellow astronauts, that is such a great mission that we're part of. And I find that it it doesn't really divide us like the world is divided by countries and by politics and you know by ideologies and philosophies but i think for the most part space exploration is something that brings us together and it's it's such a great mission that excites people it gets young people to want to study math science and engineering and you know we have things like star wars and star trek that you know kind of you know put that little extra level of excitement in it but it, it really is such a great mission. And you can look at the various roles that people have. And I, I like to tell young people, you can be part of the space program and you can be a doctor or a lawyer. You can be a teacher. You can be, you know, the janitor that cleans the launch pad. Or you, know, you think of all the jobs that, you know, I could go on on artists and writers and you don't actually have to be an engineer or a mathematician, although those jobs are, are very, very needed. Um, so I think everybody touches the space program in some way or another. And that's why I think the human part of spaceflight is very important because, you know, the, the robotic side is impo- is extremely important too. But having that human side really brings people uh, in and I think makes us better because it's, you know, what can I do as an individual human to help explore space? So I think that I could go on and on, but that, that's probably the top level. Uh, Eileen, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you shared that with us. That's a lesson that we all have to learn, especially young men and women out there that are thinking about what they want to do with their lives. And what a great way to close the podcast, Eileen. We could go on and on. I didn't read the whole list of all your accomplishments. I know that would oh, please don't. probably that would embarrass you, but you are an amazing lady. I love you to death. Um, hold your book up one more time through the glass so ceiling, <laughs> through the through the glass ceiling to the stars. If you want to know more about this amazing lady. Get this book, read this book. Eileen, I love you. Thank you for being with us. (laughs) Well, thanks, Charlie. I love you too. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast with Charlie Camarda, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.